This morning we're in John 13. Few subjects get as much attention in our culture as love. It's a topic that gets talked about often. Online dating services say that they offer a chance for love, maybe meeting the love of your life. There's a wiki how page with 10 steps to how to find love, because apparently we need wiki to tell us how to find love. Countless movies offer fairy tale stories of what love is supposed to look like, at least in the movies. Secular music is full of references to love and people's hunger for love. There's no less than 1,200 songs that have love somewhere in the title of the songs. For instance, love is all we need. These are all real song titles. Love is in the air. Love conquers all. Love will find a way. Love can move mountains. Love can build a bridge. When I fall in love. When you love someone. When you say you love me. When you tell me that you love me. I love you. I still love you. I will always love you. I'll never stop loving you. I can't stop loving you. This must be love. Is this love? Those are just a few of the song titles of many of our culture trying to grasp love. In a society as divided, as partisan, as angry as our society is, there is still a longing for something deeper, something abiding, something real. People crave genuine love. They're looking for something that lasts. If you open to John chapter 13, we are going to survey all of John 13 this morning. But the sort of pivot point around which the chapter seems to resolve is a familiar command in John 13 when Jesus says in John 13, 34, to his disciples, speaking to them, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The command itself from God to man to love is not new in one sense because it's commanded in the Old Testament as well. What's new about the command is now the, the model, the standard for the command is now as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. The model now becomes the great sacrificial love of Jesus Christ and indeed the love between the Father and the Son that Christ is living out. And so it, it, it sort of raises the bar, if you will, on what love looks like. What he says here, though, in verse 35 is, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, is a tremendous promise speaking to believers in Jesus Christ, that this ought to be a distinctive mark of who you are. This ought to be a way where when people look at Christians, if there's something unusual that they see, it should be how you care for one another and sacrifice for one another and serve one another. There should be something on, on display there that is attractive, that is curious to the world, that they see and they take note of and they, they can't really explain in worldly terms. Francis Schaeffer, great theologian of the last century many years ago, said that people for centuries displayed their Christianity through things like lapel pins and crosses on jewelry, but Schaeffer wrote, there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been brought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church. Love and the unity it attests to is the mark 
Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Love for one another. How we serve and care for one another should be a powerful mark of who we are and what we believe, and it should be evident to others. That statement by Jesus in John 13, that command and what he said would come with it, that the testimony value of that is what makes John 13 such a vital passage for us to study. Because in a large sense, it expounds on this theme of what this looks like. Jesus, by the time he gets to this command, will have already begun to show them in very concrete terms, this is what I mean by this. This is what this love looks like. Jesus is our model, and so this command then is one that we need to see Christ in. We need to see the love of Christ so that we would love as he does. So let's go back to the beginning of the chapter, John 13. Just verse 1 to start with says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's times when we talk about the word love in the New Testament, originally written in the Greek, that there were three different Greek words that get translated as various forms of love, one of them being agape, or agape, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, it, it. It is a word that is described as being the closest thing we have to a God-like love. It is the word that's often used to describe God's love for man, a sacrificial love, not merely a brotherly love or a fellowship sort of love, uh, kinship sort of thing, but, but a deep sort of abiding love. In chapters 1 through 12 of the Gospel of John, as we're following the ministry of Jesus Christ in John 1 through 12, that word, that Greek word, appears six times. Then when you get to chapter 13, the whole mood, if you will, of John changes because now it's gone from public ministry, him showing himself to be the Messiah and performing miracles and demonstrating his power, to now him in the room with his disciples. And he is speaking to his disciples. And this is really as private a ministry as we get where Jesus is equipping these men who will be foundational to the birth of the church. And it is in this forum, as he's teaching them these guys who are about to be shaken by the crucifixion, in chapters 13 through 17, that word agapao or agape, 31 times in chapters 13 through 17. Six times in chapters 1 through 12, 31 times. There's a, there's a point there in that Jesus is wanting his disciples to understand what this love looks like. If there is one crucial thing they need that will mark their ministry, that will cause them to be genuine as followers of Jesus Christ, that will set them out and that will be attractive to the world, it will be because they live out the love of Jesus Christ, because people see something different. And so he's taught them over the course of three years about his deity, about the fact that he is God, that he is claiming to be God in flesh. He's taught them about things like his power to perform miracles. They have seen um, various aspects of who Jesus is. They've seen his justice and his grace. But here is, as he is down with the disciples during this time of, of really private equipping and teaching, he is going to emphasize the need for them to master this. Know what it means when I speak of love. Know what it is when you see what love is, that this is what it is in Christ, 
And this is what it is that we are called to as his followers. As the end of our Lord's time with them is rapidly approaching, they need to grow in their understanding of the love of Christ. And that's what then needs to flow through them as they minister to the world. These are not easy lessons, which is why Paul, several decades later, in Ephesians chapter 3, is praying for believers that they would comprehend the height and breadth and depth of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because Paul, as he's writing decades later, is saying, you, you still need to grow in learning what love is. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are constantly becoming more and more aware of the greatness of the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul was praying for, that we would comprehend it just a little bit better. And that's what we're going to do this morning, is strive to comprehend it just a little bit better as we dwell on the love of Christ. Verse 1, as we saw at the end of that verse, says that he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. That word for to the end in the Greek is telos. It has the idea of either chronological, he loved them to the final point in time, he loved them to the finish line, if you will. It also has the sense of being complete or whole. So he loved them to the fullest degree possible. He loved them to completion. So it's either loved them to the end of his earthly time with them or loved them in the fullest possible measure, nothing lacking. And, and I suspect it's not either or. John is being purposely ambiguous at this point to say Jesus loved his disciples throughout his entire time with them, and he loved them completely. There was nothing lacking in his love, and so he loved his own in the world, and as his time to depart is coming, he loved them to the fullest. There is nothing lacking. Now he's going to begin to demonstrate that. John gives us that as sort of the, the kickoff verse here in this chapter, and now he shows it, verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. As we walk through John 13, I want to point out to you what I, I think are five sort of characteristics or qualities of Christ's love. Five sort of marks, if you will, of the love of Christ that you and I are called to emulate as believers in Jesus Christ. And the first of these is sacrificial service. This washing of the disciples' feet is really John just helping us to see something that is radical in that culture. Ancient writings passed down by the Jewish rabbis stated in no uncertain terms that a Jewish man was never to wash anyone's feet. Uh, one commentator says, I know of no other example in the literature of the ancient world before the coming of Jesus where such a foot washing by a leader occurs. There is no prototype for this. There's no example for this. This is John saying, Jesus loved us completely. Here, watch this. And this is what Jesus did in that room. These men are gathered around this table, as we've talked about before, sort of imagining that they are reclining, they are lying on their sides. It's a low table, and so their feet are extended away from the table. And, and Jesus is going around to each of these men's feet, and he is washing them. Even male Hebrew slaves were not to be subjected to washing someone's 
feet. The job was left to Gentile slaves, in some instances to women and children, and even then there's a rabbinic story in which a mom seeks to wash the feet of her son who is a rabbi, and he just completely denies her that and says that would be shameful for her to do. And so this is regarded as shattering societal norms, if you will, what Jesus does. This is so beneath what any of them expected of the master to do in this room. The cross, of course, that was coming within a matter of hours would be, at least from the world's experience, an even more shameful display, if you will, of love, shameful in the sense of bearing shame on himself. But in this moment, this is unparalleled. John's description here is unique in the way that he writes it in that our English translations don't capture this. He writes it all in present tense verbs. And so our English translators who are reporting something that happened do it as we would report how something happened, which is past tense. He did this, and then he did that, and then he did this. New American Standard puts little asterisks next to the verbs. If you have an NAS version in in verses 4 through 6, all the verbs are noted there because they're trying to make the point as they've translated the Greek that we're translating this as a past tense account of a story, but actually John wrote this in present tense, continuous, ongoing sense. And you're thinking, okay, what's the point of that and the grammar? I think it's as if John is trying to write it in a way where we are in the room. He is trying as best he can to take what is a breathtaking awesome moment, and as best he can, almost get us to visualize it by sort of giving it to us in play-by-play mode. Jesus, now rising from supper, now taking this towel and wrapping it around himself. Jesus is now pouring water. Jesus is now washing our feet. It's as if John is, is just trying to give us a sense of how wild this was to them in the room as they're watching what's unfolding and they're seeing the master, the one that they have committed themselves to and are following and who teaches them and leads them. And and it's as if John is just trying to give us this experience in as breathtaking a way as it actually happened because Jesus is now moving to the feet of each of those disciples, and, and John even makes sure that he points out to us that Judas was in the room. Judas had already done the deal. He had already made the financial transaction with the priests to betray Jesus, and Judas is there, and we're watching Jesus wash all of our feet one after the other. The room is in awe, and the room is silent. Until, of course, one guy speaks. Sort of the the spokesman has a moment here. And it's Peter. So John 13, verse 6. says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's the role here that's really got Peter taken. You washing me? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Here's Peter. It's good news and bad news with Peter speaking up. The good news is Peter verbalizes what they're all thinking, and that is this sense of how wildly inappropriate this seems. 
Peter's the one to say what they're all thinking at the moment is, how, how is this happening? Why are you doing this? That's the good news. Peter at least is saying what, what probably is appropriate to say at that point. Unfortunately, Peter also trips over his own pride, and instead of submitting to Jesus, decides he's going to instruct Jesus at this point. Jesus, let me tell you how this is. You're not going to do this. And suddenly, Peter's going to take on the role of master. Richard Phillips states the obvious when he says, It is a good rule in general that when we find ourselves arguing with or rebuking the word of the Lord, we are getting ourselves in trouble. And that's what Peter did. His comment in verse 8 literally begins with two negatives for emphasis. Now, we say two negatives in English grammar make a positive, not so in the Greek. Two negatives are like underline and exclamation point, and the start of the statement is, so it's, it's like saying, no, never, no, not. This is, this is Peter, and that's what the translators have tried to get when they say never, you'll never do this. This is Peter emphatically when Jesus comes to his feet saying, oh, no, <laughs> There is no way that you're washing. You may have washed theirs. You're not washing mine. So Jesus responds to him and explains in verse 7, first, that you don't fully understand what's happening here. You will, but you don't get it. Jesus will go on and he will instruct them some more. But in a sense, what Jesus is, is knowing that they don't know at this point is this is for your benefit. This is to cause you to grow. This is to teach you what love looks like. This is to teach you what active, sacrificial service of others looks like. This is to model something for you. Not only that I might show my love for you, but it is Jesus's way of beginning to teach the disciples love is not mere words. Love is humble. It is meek. It is sacrificial. It's a willingness to love others even to the point of tasks that seem menial, dirty. Stuff that we go, ah, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. And Jesus is modeling something for them that at the moment they are not getting. We are called to love like that. We are called to see this and to love like Jesus. By the way, the responses of, of Jesus to, to Peter in verses 8 and 10, there's, there's a little bit of good doctrine here where he's talking about salvation that explains these. When he says in verse 8, Peter's, no, no, never. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is referring to the simple reality of salvation. When you are saved, when you trust in Jesus Christ, one of the pictures in Scripture is of the washing of regeneration, the washing away of sin. We are made clean in Christ. And that's what Jesus is alluding to at this point. I must wash you in order to be saved. At the moment of salvation, when we are joined to Christ, we were washed and made new. 1 Corinthians 6 speaks of having been washed, believers having been those who were washed. Titus 3, washing of regeneration. Revelation 7, those whose robes were washed by the blood of the Lamb. So there is cleansing that takes place at the moment of salvation that Christ does to the believer that allows sinners, people who are marred by sin, who think sinful thoughts, who say sinful things, to now stand in the presence of the holy and perfect God of the universe. It is because we have been washed by regeneration, by Christ making us new and him cleaning us because of what he has done. 
And so in saving us, he must wash us for us to be joined to him. But then he also alludes to sort of the ongoing washing when he says in verse 10, Peter's response that was, is if you must wash me, wash everything then. Just like, let's do this. Wash my hands and my head. And Jesus says, no, just your feet, Peter. That, that's all that needs cleaning at this point. When he says that in verse 10, the one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. His point there now is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are washed, set apart, but you still live in a sinful world. We still walk in a dirty place. We still live in bodies of flesh. We are still tempted by sin. We are still drawn to sin. We still do sin. We, we don't reach sinless perfection on this side of eternity. And so what Jesus is alluding to there in that sort of regular washing of feet is, is what we would see as confession of sin, as, as dealing with sin on a day-to-day -day basis as believers, as acknowledging that the reality of sin and the reality that we do still live in the dirt and not to treat sin lightly, not to treat the way that it can interfere with our fellowship with God lightly, but to confess our sin. And that's what Jesus has in mind here. So we're cleansed, but there's still that need for regular confession of sin. And read on, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Stop there. The love of Jesus Christ is seen in sacrificial service and in patient instruction. He said right from the get-go, you don't understand what's happening here. You'll understand it more, better, later, afterward. And, and Jesus now embarks on instructing them. He's not impatient with them. They are stunned. Peter's pushed back a little bit. Jesus is not responding in kind. Jesus is patiently teaching them at this moment. He's not short with them. He takes this opportunity. What the disciples don't know or at least what they're not grasping at this moment, is they are just a short time away from their Savior being put to death, being apart from them, and then being risen and ascended from them. And they will then go. They will be commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel. They will now be the, the apostles who will be the forerunners who will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he's doing here is he's, he's very gently planting something in their minds to just get them to, to see what it's going to look like as they are teachers and leaders. See my example? See what I'm doing? Watch this, because you're going to need to emulate this. This will all make sense, and it will come to fruition in the church when, when that day comes. He, he's essentially helping the disciples who are going to go out into the world with this new gospel message, having seen Jesus Christ to people who perhaps have not seen him before, and they're going to preach and teach the gospel, and, and Jesus has by example and by instruction said to them, you're no better than them, so don't go out with this attitude of you're speaking down to them. The, being the leader doesn't make you any more special than them. Don't regard yourself as any greater than them. In fact, be a servant. Be the opposite of what you have seen in the religious leaders all around you. They have grown up in a religious culture where the leaders 
commonly demanded respect. They wanted the, the, the place of high position. They wanted to be recognized for who they were. And here is Jesus now instructing, patiently helping them to see that you're going to be a servant. The way that you teach and how you lead will be so different than what you've seen before. It's going to look like this, me washing your feet. It's going to look like you serving one another in even the most menial of ways. The love of Christ should compel us to be patient teachers of God's truth. The love of Christ should compel us to be patient with others who maybe haven't grown to the place that we think they should grow, who don't seem to understand this doctrine the way that we think they do, who don't seem to be behaving in a specific way or dealing with us in exactly the way we should. The love of Christ should compel us to be patient and to take God's word and to instruct with it, to walk alongside people, not talk down at them, not seek to harm, but to seek to serve. Patient instruction can be hard. So if you who are parents know it, you know when it's five o'clock and it is now about the sixth or seventh time that this instruction that you gave first at nine o'clock this morning has been violated again and again and again. And you've explained it so clearly and, and so precisely of what you expect. And there's your child again doing the wrong thing. And everything in you screams about rage at that point because they don't get it. And here's Jesus with disciples who just only got so much and it's hard and he is patiently instructing them. And that's what we're called to as believers in Jesus Christ, to come alongside one another and say, here's, here's God's truth. We're not, we're not reaching perfection on this side of eternity, and so we're going to, in a collaborative fellowship working together, we're going to continue to minister God's truth to one another and patiently instruct. All right, let's read a long section here. I'm going to back up again to verse 16, and we'll go all the way down through verse 30 and pick a couple things out of this section. Verse 16, again, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Keep that in mind in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, this is John using a reference that he'll use later in John of himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's in awe of the fact that Jesus loves him. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, is reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to this disciple to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Peter, smart enough at this point to not just burst out himself and tries to get John to be the one to ask the question. So he motions to him. Who's he talking about? So that disciple, John of himself, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. 
So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Interesting glimpse in this passage, off the subject of love for just a second, interesting glimpse into the sovereignty of God in all this. Jesus knows what is about to happen. Jesus is in control. There is nothing that is taking Jesus by surprise. The disciples are dumbfounded by stuff, and they have no clue what's going on. And and John is humble enough as he's recording this to tell us we had no idea what was going on in the moment. Jesus is is fully cognizant of everything that has happened and, and in control to the point of telling Judas Go and do what you're going to do. But he's made it clear already when he says not all of them were washed in verses 10 and 11. He emphasizes not all. He's speaking of Judas, verse 18. Not, this teaching would not resonate with all of them. He says, I know whom I have chosen. Uh, and so it's just an interesting display of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. The disciples are stunned by this. There is no shock for Jesus. As we've seen over and over again, he is executing the plan that his father gave him step by step according to the will of God. The love of Jesus in this passage, I want to point out two ways I think we see it. We've seen sacrificial service as he's washing their feet, patient instruction as he's telling them what this means. Now the third thing is in tender care for his own. Tender care. And this really goes back to that verse 19 When he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. This is the kindness of Jesus, that on the eve of his crucifixion, as weighted down as he is with the reality of what he is about to face, that his concern is with the rest of the disciples because of what's about to unfold. We're a couple of hours away from Troops coming to grab Jesus, to arrest him. They've been with him for three years. He's done nothing wrong. He's healed people. He's raised the dead. He's taught with power. And now the the Jewish authorities are sending their troops to arrest him and steal him away at night. And they're going to watch from a distance as he is tried in a, a mockery of a trial. And he is beaten mercilessly. And then they are going to see him nailed through his hands and feet and hung on the cross like the commonest of criminals and put to death. And Jesus, knowing full well of what is about to take place, is concerned to explain to them that all of this is what's going to happen. This is God's plan. Don't don't get dismayed. Don't, Don't fear. Because, I mean, even when you get down to verse 33, and we'll see in a moment, he's going to say, I'm going away, and you're not going to be able to come where I am. This whole idea of the betrayer, this has left them in utter confusion at this point, and Jesus is, is telling them this is what's going to happen so that as they, as they collect their thoughts and watch it unfold and start to think about it, the words of Jesus will start playing back and reminding them that I told you this. I would go up to Jerusalem. I would be arrested. I would be betrayed by one of my own. I would be tried. All of these things that he's been teaching them right through this point where he's instructing them about exactly what's happening, even though they're not getting it, is is there to give them future comfort so that in their worst moments, which were coming in hours, when they started to at least think back on things he said, some of it would start to go, okay, that is what he said. That is apparently what God's doing in this, as hard as it was to for them to fathom. It was still going according to God's plan. Jesus knew that these next 24 hours were going to shatter these 11 disciples. And like a good shepherd, he is caring for his sheep. 
He's saying to his sheep, this is what you will see. I will be betrayed. This is God's plan. Rest in this. And he is loving them this way to see that none of this happens outside of the will of God. And, and keep in mind, in all of this, verse 21 says, Jesus is troubled in spirit. Jesus is the one who is to be betrayed. Jesus is in the room with his betrayer. I don't know about you, I'm not sure how I would fare in that setting. I'm not sure how loving I would be in that moment, knowing that someone in that room was determined to have me arrested on false charges that would ultimately lead to my execution. And yet, he is troubled in spirit, and he never stops caring for his disciple. His, his concern is still with these men, to teach them, to serve them, to warn them, to help them understand as best they can and what limited understanding they have at this point, that there is a sovereign plan unfolding here. You can rest in this, guys. This is what's going to happen, so they can anticipate what's to come. Jesus does the same thing with you and I, doesn't he? I mean, all throughout the scriptures, he warns us. He tells us coming to faith in Christ does not mean everything just goes great from here on out and there's no more trials or problems. As a matter of fact, he tells us the opposite. Throughout the New Testament, he says, don't be surprised by this. There will be things that come your way simply because of your faith in Christ or to test you in your faith and strengthen your faith in Christ. And so he warns us repeatedly of these things because he's caring for us. Because he doesn't want to have us just come upon things and go, oh, I didn't expect this. Satan will accuse us. Satan will tempt us towards sin. Satan will tempt us to doubt God's love for us. We are warned of these things. James 1 says we will meet trials of various kinds. 1 Peter 2.12, unbelievers will twist things and they will brand us as evildoers. They will say horrible things about you because of your faith in Christ. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. It is the tender care of Jesus that he is constantly caring for his sheep and saying, listen, this road ahead is not going to be smooth. There's going to be things along the way that are going to try you and test you, but here's what I tell you. I love you, and I will be with you until the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. Rest in me. Know me. Trust me. Know that my telling you now that this road will be hard is because I am the sovereign over this, and so you can, you can trust me when the road is hard and you're in the middle of it. You can still know that I love you. For all of the disciples' uncertainty and resistance in that moment in John 13, the fact that John repeats all of this back is a reminder to us of just how Jesus was caring for these men. In the midst of the the horror that Jesus was about to experience and that he knew he was about to experience, he is speaking truth and he is warning his disciples because he loves them and he cares for them and he doesn't want them to be scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He's shepherding them. And so should we, right? That sort of tender care toward young believers, toward struggling believers, being careful to remind them Careful to tell them, this is, not, this, is, this, this is not the TV brand of Christianity where everything goes good and all the money just rolls in and all the bills are paid and all the problems are gone and you have perfect health from here on out. 
This is, this is a Christianity that still faces hardship. People will hate you. You may lose your job. You may lose your health. But you know what? You will never lose the love of God in Christ Jesus. He has saved you as his own. And he will walk with you, and he will strengthen you, and his spirit will abide with you, and you have that hope. And that's what we're called to, is being that tender in our love with others as we care for people. Those, we should help them to not be shaken in ignorance. Something's come upon them that they didn't expect. We can help them from God's word to see, no, this is, this is true, but here's, here's the God who loves you, and here's what his word says. It's another display of God's love in this passage. Not only this tender care, but it is what he does with Judas. Again, put yourself in that setting. Your betrayer is right there. What do you want to do to that person, right? It, it left to your own devices, how would you respond to that person in that room in front of others who is about to betray you? Judas has already gone, and he has already been to the priest, and he has already collected the 30 pieces of silver and said, here's the deal. I will find you, Jesus, at night, so the crowds will all be asleep, everybody will be settled in, and I will lead you to where Jesus is in the dark of night so that you can arrest him without the city knowing about it. Judas has already set all that up, and Jesus is in the room with him, knowing full well that Judas is already in the midst of executing this plan, and yet Jesus shows to Judas long-suffering grace. His love is marked by long-suffering grace, that he can sit in the room with his betrayer and love him. The one who has arranged to have Jesus taken to his crucifixion, Jesus doesn't stand up in that room and go, he's the terrible man, he's the hard... Jesus continues even to the point of washing his feet. That's why John pointed that out at the beginning, that Judas was in the room before this took place and after this took place. He was there. That's the part that I think, as John is relating this back to him, I think that's the part that is most stunning to John and the other disciples is, how, we didn't get what was going on, but he knew what was going on all the time, and he still had dinner right next to this guy, right with him. The fact that he hands him the morsel means Judas was either right next to him or was really close to him. Richard Phillips writes, Jesus' handling of his own betrayer shows his great patience and mercy as the savior of sinners. Look at how Jesus bore with Judas even to the dreadful end of the hardened unbelief that claimed Judas's soul. Jesus handing Judas that piece of dip bread, he did say to his disciples that when I do this, that's the one. But even then... As far as a signal goes, the disciples are still clueless because then when Jesus says, go and do what you got to do, they're like, ah, I guess Judas is going to go give money to the poor or something. They're still just, the, the, the idea that one of this inner circle was going to go and, and turn Jesus in to be killed was the farthest thing from their minds at this moment. And so they're still not fathoming it. And, and Jesus is not at the point here of, of trying to destroy Judas, and, and I would submit to you that even in, in handing that to Judas, there is still the grace of his kindness toward Judas. There's still that sense of appeal to him. He still treats him as a friend throughout that, that meal and still serves him by washing his feet. Leon Morris writes, if the giving of the sop was a mark of favor, which it would have been under normal circumstances for a host to give a portion of the meal to actually serve someone, if the giving of the sop was a mark of favor or the like, it would be in the nature of a final appeal to Judas. But Judas did not respond. He gave himself more fully to Satan's leading. We need to love with long-suffering grace. 
I think if we're honest about it, we all admit that's not easy. It's easy to love people who are gracious and kind back to us. It's not quite as easy to have that same sort of long-suffering grace toward people who have worn us down, people who have ticked us off, people who have done things that are obnoxious and rude and trying to still have the grace to show simple kindness to them. And Jesus does that. He's still a friend. And so I think there's an appeal here to you and I. If we're going to love like Christ, particularly within the body of Christ, it means we're going to we're going to love the difficult people too, the people that we find to be difficult. We're going to still continue to be long-suffering and, and, and trust that God is in control there. Let's read the last section. Verse 31, when he had gone out, so Judas has left, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in, 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 him in himself. And glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. New commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Love of Christ is seen in sacrificial service, patient instruction, tender care, long-suffering grace, and finally in this giving of hope. There are two ways in this passage I think we see Jesus instilling hope in people who are about to become hopeless people who are about to be challenged on every front in their hope. And Jesus has said things ahead of time to instill hope in them. First is, he's saying to the 11 that what is about to happen is for the purpose of glorifying God. So for the 11, the unthinkable is about to take place. Jesus is not just going away from them, but this is the worst possible news. He's being crucified. He's being killed. And yet what Jesus says at the beginning of this section, after Judas has left, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. It is Jesus' way of saying to the eleven, yes, you're going to be shaken, but understand that what is about to unfold is for the glory of God. So another one of those for them to think back on, to give them hope for the future. Jesus is going away from us, and we can't go with him. And yet God will be glorified in this. There's hope in that. Even if, even if there's not full comprehension, there's hope. In addition, even in going away from them, the implication of verse 35 when he says, by this all people will know that you are, present tense, my disciples, if you have love for one another, it's just another way of Jesus saying, yes, I'm going away from you, but you will still be my disciples. That relationship will not be changed. You will still be serving me. You will still be my disciples. You will still be demonstrating Christ-likeness to others. I, I think implicit in all this is, yes, I'm going away, but know that it's, it's all for good. This is, this is all going to work. God will be glorified. You will follow after me. And even though I depart, you will still be my disciples. That relationship will remain. He's not going away for good, never to be seen again. He will still be their master and savior, and they will still live out their lives loving others as his disciples. But there's also very specific hope that he gives here to Peter. Peter gives this foolish boast. 
Oh, no. They're going to have to go through me to get to you, Jesus. You are not going away because I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to die in your place so that they don't get to you. And Jesus graciously says, Peter, no, no, that's not exactly the way it's going to work, Peter. Not only are you not going to die for me, not only am I going away and you can't go with me, but the reality is is that before sunrise, you will deny even knowing me three times. Before the rooster crows in the morning, three times, you will deny me, you, Peter. Now, that's, that's got to cut to the core of who Peter is at that moment. We, we've already dealt with this instance earlier where, where Peter's been straightened out, and we've had other instances where Peter's been straightened out. So Peter knows Jesus doesn't exaggerate for effect. And so when Jesus says to Peter, no, I am going away, and you're going to deny me, you can imagine no more devastating news to Peter than to know not only will he not stand for Jesus, but he will betray Jesus in the sense of saying, I don't know him. I deny ever being with him. So what does Jesus do? He says, look what he says right before that in verse 36. Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But what? But you will follow afterward. There's there's what Peter has to hold on to. When all is said and done, there is hope for restoration for fallen sinners. There is the hope that Peter knows when that rooster crows that morning and he has done exactly what Jesus said and foolishly denied Jesus and now Jesus is being led away to be crucified. Even in the course of this strong rebuke that Jesus gives to him, he says to Peter, but that's not it. That won't be the end of the story. My going away, your denying me, it doesn't end there because where I go afterward, you're going to come and we're going to be joined together. There will be a reunion and you will be restored and we will will experience the intimacy of fellowship again. And isn't that what it is for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ when we come to that place, when when God saved you and you came to that place of seeing your sin and realizing that you were apart from God because of your sin and he saved you, he restored you, and he promised to you that even though we will have our times when we will still foolishly embarrass the name of Jesus Christ, even though there will still be moments that we will say and do things that we will regret, that there is a Savior who says, afterward, I will take you to be with me and you will be with me. You'll be restored Fully. That is a profound and necessary message for you and I. And inherent in that is he is loving them by giving them hope. He's not leaving them sort of off, not leaving Peter beaten up in that moment. But he's saying to Peter, I want you to have hope, brother, that this isn't the end. You can look at it later, but I encourage you to look at the beginning of Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, 1 starts, let brotherly love continue. What we've been talking about, this kind of love amongst brothers, The writer of Hebrews gives some examples of what he means by that when he says brotherly love. Hospitality to strangers, caring for people who have been mistreated, visiting those in prison, probably some who are under persecution he's talking about. He goes on and he urges believers, be content because, be content with what you have because Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The abiding presence of Jesus gives us the ongoing experience of the love of Jesus Christ. And so when he exhorts the church, let brotherly love continue. Love one another so that they see that love. It, it, 
I've given you a new commandment. With that commandment is, lo, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Listen, if, if we're honest, what he's calling us to do here by example is outside of the realm of experience for us. It's outside of who we are normally as human beings to sacrificially serve others, to be patient in instruction and tender in care and seeking to give hope to people and long-suffering and grace toward those who've wronged us. All of that is contrary to what we are by nature. And yet he reminds us, I'm with you. If you're trusting in me, it's my spirit, my power, and my grace at work in you. Rest in that. Because the more we contemplate the magnitude of the love of Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 3, the height and depth and breadth of the love of Christ, the more it should fill us with such gratitude. What a magnificent love toward us who came into this life no different than Judas. We, we had no interest. We didn't need God. We didn't think we needed anything. We pretty much had it. We figured it all, all to ourselves. And then God saves us out of our sin. That should fill us with gratitude and that otherworldly kind of love that Jesus is modeling here, that he enables us to persist in. We know that within hours, Jesus would give the ultimate display of sacrificial love. When he allowed himself to be nailed hands and feet to the cross, and in the darkness of those hours of suffering on the cross, when he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those hours, he was bearing in his body the wrath of God for my words and thoughts and deeds. And yours, our sin, was on him. And he was experiencing the punishment that you and I deserve. And Jesus took it so that he could defeat it and love us and give us life and forgiveness. What a remarkable display of his love and what a calling to you and I now to love others. Let's pray. Father, help us to love, starting first here with the family of God, that we would love our brothers and sisters at all times, in all ways, that we would look for ways to be tender and sacrificial and patient and long-suffering and, and givers of hope. Help us to be a people who would care deeply for our brothers and sisters in Christ and seek to serve them, even down to menial tasks, that we would count it a joy to be able to, to bend down and, and do what needs to be done to help a brother or sister. May we see, Lord, in in humbling ourselves, your grace at work, your strength enabling us to do so. Lord, maybe as we're praying here, there's someone coming to mind that we are angry with or impatient with or fed up with in some way. Help us again to, to see in the love of Christ that perhaps there's another opportunity here to instruct, to come alongside, to care, to serve in some way with truth. Lord, thank you for being so long-suffering with us. Thank you for grace that covers all of our sins. I pray that if there is anyone listening who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, who has not come to experience the washing away of sin because of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that you might, by your love and in your grace, open their eyes to see in Christ a glorious, loving Savior.
Father, if there's one listening today who's struggled with this, they have not found love in family or in friendship. They have not found something lasting or genuine. Lord, we believe that there is one who loves perfectly. That is you and your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would show them that love again this day. They might embrace you and find in you the love they have sought. Thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you for loving us. Help us to be people who love others as we go from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.